hope you'll enjoy this episode of Women Worth Knowing. Make sure you rate us on your podcast app, subscribe, and share it with a friend. This is Cheryl Broderson in studio with Jasmine Allnut. And we are so excited to bring you part two of Elizabeth Fry. Yes. And last week we heard about her upbringing, so to speak, her fears, mm. her marriage, her children, but we really didn't get into the ministry of yeah. Elizabeth Fry. We told you a little bit, and we're going to pick up at this point that she's yeah. in London and her husband has just gone to a place called Newgate prison, but we want to talk a little bit more about the conditions in Newgate prison. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because as you might recall from the last episode, we talked about uh, the problems of the uh, associated with the Industrial Revolution. You know, great advances in technology, but it kind of came at a cost because— Big cost. You have a big cost because you have all these people uh, now uh, moving into these uh, urban centers. Crowded. Crowded. There's a that, lot of— That weren't meant to take this amount of people. No, not at all. And there was no plumbing. Yeah, no plumbing. You have, oh, yeah, the sanitation way, The issues. way they dealt with their refuse is they would put it in chamber pots and mm. then sometimes just dump it out the window. Yeah. So in the streets, there would be raw sewage mm -hmm. in the streets. Plus there yeah. were carriages. So oh, there's yeah. horse dung in <laughs> the so, streets. So, so the streets themselves, I mean— Just it's, disease. It's, it's, yeah. And it smells. Just it ready smells. for, yep. But if you think London life is bad mm. and sections of London are dangerous and bad— Newgate Prison is a whole yep, different that's bat. taking it to another level. Exactly. Mm -hmm. I know it's kind of funny you mentioned that. I was just thinking about the, the Great Stink in 1858, how right. the, the Thames was so uh, polluted, polluted by waste. And that cholera broke out. Right. I mean, it was just— Well, they used to throw the dead bodies into yes, the Thames. Yes, that too. Oh, it's just— Anyway, yeah, guys. It was not a place you wanted to go swimming. Yeah, it was a mess. <laughs> and yet that's where their drinking water came from. Yeah, and so that's— you know, so they, they didn't know that that was yeah, causing they cholera. they put the sanitation like, into the oh. Thames— uh, they would throw dead bodies into the Thames. I mean, people who couldn't afford a burial, <laughs> Take a swig. they would just throw them into the Thames. And then the water for the tea and yeah. everything they drank came out oh, of the so Thames. Oh, so bad. So bad. So, and again, so again, this is just how, like I said, why it's called the Industrial Revolution, because it was so revolutionary. It really brought so much upheaval to society that nobody was prepared to handle. And the prison system was one of those systems that could not handle and didn't know how to properly process all of this change, all of this urban growth and development. And as Cheryl kind of mentioned last uh, week, the prison system was kind of, a, it became kind of a catch-all. If you have like a problem situation, not just for criminals, but just other people that maybe had some issues of some sort, they would just throw them into the prisons, out of sight, out of mind. Well, and there's no organization. Like, right. If you had a relative that was crazy and you couldn't handle it. Right. They would be committed to prison. If you had somebody that was so sick that they didn't have any money because they'd gotten really sick, mm -hmm. they were thrown into prison. Yeah. If you had a criminal who had killed someone, they were thrown into prison. If you couldn't pay your debts, you were thrown into prison, right? Prostitutes yeah. thrown into prison. Um, again, prison was— um, 
for everybody and whole families would be living in debtor's prison. That was part of the problem. Yeah, mm-hmm. because you'd have like, like she said, innocent, really, you know, basically innocent people. Maybe your children, um, yeah, babies maybe were your, born in prison. Maybe your husband died or mm-hmm. uh, broke his leg and couldn't go to work. Well, if you can't pay your debts, sorry. And if you have no one to send the kids with, like maybe you don't have any relatives that can take the kids, they've got to just go with you. Again, it was just all like, just get rid of them, put them all together. And so you have these hardened, gnarly criminals right next to innocent people or people maybe who stole something minor. For those of you who've seen uh, Les Mis or you read the book, maybe, Les Miserables, um, you know, Jean Valjean, that's what he did. He stole a loaf of bread for his sister's family and he ended up in a chain gang. I mean, you know, a 10-year prison sentence for stealing something because he minor. was desperate, mm-hmm. you know. And so, you know, not that you don't punish people, but the way they would do it is just push, punish everybody equally all together. It was just chaotic. So, right, and of course, there's no sanitation in this prison. And they use straw, like what straw they could find, because straw is also considered, like, for the upper class, straw. Right. And so they would use straw to kind of absorb the sanitation. Absorb waste and, oh, gosh, yeah. So, but they'd live on straw, and they Mm -hmm. took what possessions they had into the prison with them. So there was lots of thievery in the prison because you've got the worst of the worst in society plus the poor in society. So there's lots of thievery. And then— Authorities are trying to figure out how to feed all these people and how to take care of. So there's really very little, if any, food. Usually what happened is if you had family on the outside or any friends, they would bring you food in. But that also was a rarity. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there was just— This is a place you didn't want to associate with. And if you didn't have to, you did not go near— one, mm-hmm. it was dangerous because of all the rampant diseases, mm. um, because of the sicknesses, the illnesses. Yeah. You would get sick just cholera was rampant in yeah. those places in the sanitation. Yeah. Death. People would die, and it took them, like, weeks to even find who the dead person was. I mean, yeah. crazy, crazy terrible. Yeah. So and so she goes in, and, and she finds uh, actually 300—this is crazy—300 women and children crammed into four rooms that right. could and barely she, fit them all. This is when 1813, her first visit? Yeah. Yes, exactly. And so, and then again, you have innocent women, you got kids, they're all kept right next to these hardened criminals and prostitutes. Some of them are so tough and vulgar that they even shock the male prisoners. They're like, whoa, these women are intense. Because you've got a little Quaker woman. She's not a big woman either. Mm -hmm. We forgot to mention that. She's pretty small. Mm -hmm. And she's a little Quaker woman. So she's plainly dressed. She goes into this, and she already has eight children. This is not the place, if you're a mother, that you want to go into because you don't want to carry any of these rampant diseases or germs or illnesses out to your children. So it just was not done by anybody who was respectable, let alone somebody who was religious, so to speak, Mm -hmm, or mm -hmm. tiny of a tiny frame. Yeah, wealthier. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So you've got— yeah, all of this chaos going on, and she's, you know, learning about all this. And and not only that, you know, like I said, you know, the women are—a lot of them are just, like I said, drunk. They're filthy. There's prostitutes in there. Uh, not only that, but then you've got the prison guards. They would often come in and sleep with the prostitutes in there. Sometimes they would have even forced themselves on the other women because they're just defenseless and helpless in there. And again, imagine there's kids in this toxic, dangerous environment with their moms. I mean, talk about— just traumatic. And 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 they they had to sleep on the floor like everyone else. You've got newborn babies uh, lying naked in the cold cells. One time Elizabeth went in and she saw two ladies taking the clothes off a dead baby to put on a living one. They're like, this one's dead. Get the clothes off. Let's put it on another. I mean, there was no sanctity of life. What her biographer said, 
Bathing utensils were scarce, lice swarmed in clothes and hair, the daily ration of food was one small loaf of bread per person, there was no there was no medicine, sick women were dumped on dirty straw, like we were talking about, without so much as a bed. Death by prison fever, which we now know as typhoid, was common. So this horrific scene. And Elizabeth and actually a couple other women were brave enough to start going in. First, she goes in in 1813. She sees that. She goes back with food, trying to help. Yeah. And then they said, no, you can't come back. So she was, what do you say? Barred from the prison for four years. Yeah, there were a couple years in between, exactly, mm -hmm. where it was like, no, no, no. But eventually, yes, she does get back in there. Interesting enough that she wanted to. Mm -hmm. That this whole time, instead of a desire like, well, I can't do that, it began to grow in her that she wanted to get back, that she couldn't get those people and their torments and the hardship. Mm -hmm. and, and as we said, the first experience is not pleasant. No. There's no change in these prisoners at this point, and yet she wants to go back. Yeah. It was a calling. It mm -hmm. was something that the Lord really—again, mm -hmm. remember her affinity for the poor and needy anyway. There was a drive in her that was from the Lord, that compassion. So she goes back, and it's so neat what she did. There's here's again this just you know picture this modest simple plain Quaker woman she goes into the prison cell and this is a few years later and there's these rough characters and they're all looking at her really suspiciously like oh my gosh this goody goody what the heck they know what she is they know she's a Quaker and it's then, obvious yeah it's obvious and she kind of is freaking out inside a little bit like okay you know they look like they want to hurt me <laughs> and so it's so cool it was like the Lord just you know told showed her to focus on the kids and she sees a, one of the little kids she kind of zooms in on this focuses in on this one little girl. And knowing that if nothing else, these women do care about the kids, she walked over, she picks one of them up, and she said, is there not something that we can do for these innocent little children? And I love this. Her biographer said, the words had an extraordinary effect. Hardly any woman in that surging mass had ever been asked for her opinion before or mm. heard that the future might be different. But with four small words, what can we do? The light of hope immediately pierced the darkness. And the fact that she was identifying with them, which I'm going to mention again in a minute, saying we. What can mm -hmm. we do together, ladies? That totally opened the door. That was It was just, again, the Lord leading her. And we see that with a lot of these people. I'm thinking of Gladys Aylward. And like when the Holy Spirit puts you in a crisis moment, when like when she went into the prison there in China, and just in that moment gives you exactly what to say and do. That was what happened here. And so, you know, again, being a very practical woman, she started bringing clothes in for the babies and clean straw to sleep on. By the third time she visited, the women could see, wow, she's invested. There's, there's a real genuine love and concern here. And they start letting her pray with them. And at this point, she realizes that the Lord is calling her to reform the prison. But she knew she was going to have a lot of obstacles because she would be dealing with men in authority. Or one biographer said she was about to take on such a task Again, at a time when women had no public role, she would inevitably be leaving her family for longer periods. And as a Quaker minister, she might be succumbing to what was creaturely. And so there was, you know, some people in the Quaker movement might have looked at that as you're putting yourself around these unsavory characters. But she knew it was a call. And she often remembered, again, that word that Deborah Darby had spoken. And it's neat because William Savory used to say something, and this came up repeatedly in her biography because it was something she constantly remembered. He once said to her, Elizabeth, there are no lives so unlovely, none so unworthy or so lost that they are beyond the reach of God's transforming light. And she kind of carried that with her. But one of the ways she ministered was she taught the women. 
Mm-hmm. And I love that she went in and she began to teach them skills because mm-hmm. part of the, you know, the women are bored. They don't have, they feel unproductive yep. because they're just kind of there to die and they don't even have any hope of ever being released. Yeah. So she collected like yarns yeah. and she collected knitting needles and she collected just pieces of fabric. In fact, she is one of the first to supposedly have patchwork quilts <laughs> and oh, teach the it. women by sewing, taught them to embroider and begin to feel productive. Mm -hmm. And so they can start earning or start fixing things themselves. And why they're knitting, she teaches them to knit and why they're knitting Mm -hmm. and why they're sewing. And while their hands are busy, she... She, Well, I'm going to get to that in a minute. Well, she went to the authorities to present a plan for starting a school because she's focusing on the kids first to really Mm -hmm. win the women over. And they were, uh, the authorities were very uncomfortable with this, of course. They're very dismissive. And they they said, oh, we'll think about it. And then they're like, oh, sorry, Elizabeth, we have no room. There's no room for a schoolroom. And that was kind of like they're out. Like, oh, sorry, there's no space. But she was undaunted. And she said, okay. So she goes to the women in the prison and said, hey, guys, the authorities say there's, there's no space. And the ladies are like, no problem. We'll give one of our four cells up for a school. And they were, so she goes back to the authorities and said, well, they're willing to give this whole room over. And so they were kind of like caught, like, dang it, okay, there's space. So they're like, okay, fine. Uh, they grudgingly agreed. And that was when the women were so responsive to the school that she was start able to start these reform activities for the women themselves. The men that she was dealing with in authority, you know, they, they resisted even these other efforts because they felt like, well, the women are unteachable. You know, there's no way that you can do this. And so she basically had to, you know, go back door and start an all-female, it was called the Association for the Improvement of the Female Prisoners in Newgate in 1817. This is revolutionary, though, because this is the first time that the idea of rehabilitation, because they really were sent there to die, and nobody cared about what happened to the people in prison. Right. Nobody. And so she's coming in and saying, no, we, we can help these people. And again, this is part of her Christianity. These mm-hmm. also have the image of God, their image bearers. So we want to go in and we want to respect and teach and help them. Yeah. And so this is like her thought process and what she was presenting to these authority figures is so novel and so foreign to how they think. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, these, they, it was really hard to see these people in the image of God because they were so dirty and so messy and like they're cussing and all of that. They just wanted them off the streets. Yeah, they just didn't want to have to think about Mm -hmm. them, not have to deal with them. Here she is. She's providing them with a sense of of, a work ethic, a sense of self-respect as they're sewing and learning to make things for food. But the most important thing she did was that whenever she would come into the prison while they were sewing, while they were making all of these projects, she would read the Bible to the women. And she knew that the gospel alone could truly transform them. She said, nothing short of the Holy Spirit can really help forward the cause of righteousness on earth. And she knew that was the key here. You know, yes, I can do all these things and clean them up and make them look a little more presentable, but the word of God is what's going to change them. And God began to move in their lives. And so it's not long before people start to notice that something is going on in the women's prison. It is not even remotely what it was before. People, the women are sitting there quietly, sewing and knitting, and Elizabeth's reading to them. It's getting cleaner. And the English authorities and the government start being like, wait a second, maybe she's onto something here. The prison governor, the Lord Mayor of London, other figures start even coming in and listening to Elizabeth reading the Bible to the prisoners. And I have to read this quote from her biographer. This is something that a guy who came in, one of the visitors who wanted to 
see this for himself. And this is what he said happened when he came to hear Elizabeth Fry read the Bible. Tier above tier rose the seats at the end of the room, a gallery of wooden steps many feet high. And on the gallery, the female prisoners, many of them the very refuse of society, were seated. It was indeed a shocking, most distressing spectacle. The range of about a hundred women's faces with the various types of vice and crime written on the lines of almost every one. But there they sat in respectful silence, every eye fixed upon the grave, sweet countenance of the gentle lady who was about to address them. A table was before her on which lay the Holy Bible. And after a pause for silent prayer of some minutes, she quietly opened the inspired volume. She turned to the prophet Isaiah and read aloud the 53rd chapter. Never till then and never since have I heard anyone read as Elizabeth Fry read that chapter. The solemn reverence of her manner, the articulation, so exquisitely modulated, so distinct, that not a word of that sweet, touching voice could fail to be heard. While she read, her mind seemed to be intensely absorbed in the passage of Scripture and nothing else. She seemed to take into her own soul the words that she read and apply them to herself. And then she raised her head, and after another pause of silence, she spoke to the wretched women before her. Her address was short and so simple, it must have been intelligible to the capacities of her hearers, and it was soon evident that she, it had come home to the hearts of many by the subdued expression of their countenances, by the tears that flowed freely from their eyes, which perhaps had never shed such tears till then. She set forth clearly, forcibly, though with mild persuasiveness, the wonderful love of God in sending his own son to die in the place of sinners and accepting the sacrifice of himself as an atonement for their sins. She told them that it was he who was led as a sheep to the slaughter, he who was despised and rejected of men, he who had borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And then most impressively, she added, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. What struck me as most remarkable in her speaking, and no doubt what won its way so powerfully to the hearts of the abandoned women, was that she always seemed to class herself with them. She never said you, but us, when speaking of those who were lost, giving them to understand, though not in distinct words, that in the sight of God they were all alike sinners, all alike lost, if not washed in the precious blood of Christ. I have heard many eloquent preachers, but I have never before or since listened to one who so thoroughly imbibed the master's spirit or been taught by him the persuasive power of pleading with sinners for the life of their own souls. And I just wanted to read that at length because I think it really portrays her identity with them and the fact that she's like, hey, we, let's do something together for your kids. Let's do something together for yourselves. Let's come to Jesus together because we all need a savior. I just as much as you. Nobody did that. The respectable people always kept their distance. And that's where the Quakers were unique too yes. because they really stressed a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Yep. And a lot of the other denominations, it was kind of a corporate relationship. We as the church go yeah. to God and then we have our pastor and he's close. Yeah. But the Quakers were individualistic as far as we each mm -hmm. have a relationship with the Lord. And that's the transforming Amen. power. And we're all equal at the foot of the cross, as That's the right. saying goes. And mm -hmm. so so simply because of this obedience to the Lord and just the genuineness of her faith uh, and, and her love for these women, he begins to open up even more doors. And it's really cool because, uh, again, the men, many men were expressing their doubts, but her husband really became an ally. Um, Fry Banking actually experienced a financial disaster during this time. And it's cool because supporting Elizabeth's ministry kind of helped restore Joseph's confidence. And he started to get other guys on board. And so he was never a, a spiritual powerhouse himself, but he adored his wife, and he was so faithful. And it's really interesting. He didn't mind the times where he would, you know, partner with her in, with, in raising the kids and, and, and dealing with her health issues. He was so attentive. Uh, so not a super driven guy, but 
Um, he was happy behind the scenes. He liked that, and it's a really unique situation. So Elizabeth was uh, very humble. She actually wanted the work to kind of carry on quietly. She's like, can we just kind of be under the radar here doing our thing? But the effects of her ministry were so remarkable, like I said, that it started to make waves in British society. And uh, as with other women we've looked at, she was a trailblazer. She really opened a door of opportunity for other women. And so women start writing to her from all over Britain, wanting to start their own associations to help the prisoners. Um, she had started with, it was cute, 11, I think 10 or 11 other Quakers and one e other evangelical anonymous person. <laughs> and so there's all these other women like, hey, we want to do the same thing. And then men, uh, especially magistrates, they started asking her advice on prison reform because they were thinking if something can happen at Newgate, then, you know, surely there's something we could do to reform this system here. And so, I mean, they started asking for her advice on all kinds of things. In 1818, she was invited to give evidence on the state of London's prisons before the House of Commons. Eventually, Sir Robert Peel, who was an MP, he later, a member of parliament, he later became the prime minister. And he became a big supporter of her work and came alongside her to legislate prison reforms and then other kinds of reforms. William Wilberforce became an ardent supporter. Uh, she connected with Hannah Moore. And so you see all these contemporaries starting to line up together in trying to, you know, transform British society with the gospel. We're talking the Industrial Revolution. She also started a homeless shelter in the city of London itself yeah. uh, because in 1819 or 1820, she saw a little boy on the street yeah. who was sleeping. And so she decided, no, we need to have homes for some of these children. Yeah. And so she started homeless. You know, um, it's incredible. This is about mm -hmm. the same time, too, of, of George uh, Mueller, who starts Bristol right. in the orphanage. So a lot of um, people feeling stirred during mm -hmm. this time to really start ministering yeah. to. And, and I love that they didn't just take the gospel. Mm. They they took the gospel with a spirit of ministry and a heart to minister and help. Yes, practical, hands-on ministry. And so, you know, she had a, a lot of opposition, obviously, as a woman in the public sphere, accusations that she was trying to further the Gurney family interests or just a lot of family dynamics and all that. But it's so neat. Her family totally backed her up. And those who had been skeptical before, including her brother-in-law, Thomas Fowl Buxton, I mean, he became a really famous social reformer himself. He kind of came around and started partnering with her. Um, her two oldest daughters started to get involved in the ministry, and, and it seemed like God was wanting to really expand the work. So she and her brother, Joseph John, went and started visiting prison, prisons all over England and Scotland. She published a book in 1827 about her uh, findings and, and began to seek to reform prisons in Ireland over in continental Europe. Again, she began to set up visiting societies to work with the poor, established a committee to improve uh, conditions for women on the convict ships that were sent to Australia. For years, actually, she personally spoke to the women on every ship that sailed out of the harbor. They numbered how many thousands of women she actually personally went to go talk to. I've actually been on one of those convict ships. Oh, wow. And we use the word ships, and a boat would be more in kind to it. They've right. got one on the shore in Australia that Brian and I actually were on, and it was so tiny, and they would have up to I don't know how they did it. It was like it was like being in a Volkswagen bug. It they were Man. it was so small and they would just pack the convicts in it in the whole of this it's crazy. these little boats. Oh. Yeah. But she would go and minister to these women. Yeah. Who were and, and it, yeah, and it, it influenced them. They would write mm -hmm. to her later um about how the Lord had used her in their lives. Um she also, this is really sweet, she worked to get improved facilities for the mentally ill. 
she had a special compassion for the mentally ill because of her own struggles with depression, suicidal thoughts, all those overwhelming fears. It had given her such a compassion for the mentally ill and for those who really, you know, struggled in that area. And I love that. This is, again, where we see her weakness made strong and giving her a compassion. And as we've talked about, kind of hinted at at the beginning of the podcast, she also developed a training school for nurses. And the women were expected to tend to the spiritual needs of their patients as well as the physical ones. So we see her influence in so many different areas. Also, the idea of nurses. Again, they're being trained in cleanliness. Yep. They're being trained in how to bandage wounds. This is novel. This is so new, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. The ministry was obviously thriving in so many different areas. Of course, though, we have to remember she still faced obstacles, oppositions, In her 40s, she was still dealing with attacks of nervous depressions. Sometimes she'd have to take medicine to carry on with her work. There was always opposition to her ministry as a woman. But again, she was blazing a trail for those who would follow. And usually trailblazers were the ones who would (laughs) have to really um, stay the course and persevere through a lot of discouragement. One thing that was hard for her was that most of her family left the Quakers. And they uh, joined—a lot of times they joined other evangelical churches, the Anglican Church, which is great, you know, but— That was still a challenge for her to get used to because sometimes she was like, well, okay. I mean, I, you know, so there were a lot of personal things in her life that were difficult. Uh, Her husband went bankrupt in 1828. He actually got kicked out of the Society of Friends, the Quakers, for a few years. So they went through a lot of tragic, painful circumstances that were embarrassing. But you know what's really cool? William Wilberforce was a huge support and encouragement when that happened. including other friends. And it's so neat how you see the evangelical community. They all kind of got over a lot of those denominational differences during this time. And I think that's what made a lot of their ministry so effective was that they were willing to partner together for the gospel's sake. And so ultimately, Elizabeth was able to say, even though that was so challenging, again, they lose their wealth. They lose a lot of the prestige that went with that and even just uh, the comforts. And she uh, was able to say, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Like she wrote that because she had to really work through that. So a lot of trials and challenges. In spite of those things, the Lord moved in work. Her work ultimately made her well-known across the nation, throughout Europe. Amazingly, in her 50s and 60s, her prison ministry extended to France and Belgium. Um, She met with the French, Dutch, Prussian, and Belgian royalty. And she met in England with... Queen Victoria. Which is very impressive. I read that Queen Victoria was one of the largest contributors. Mm, Not surprising. To the ministry. Yeah. She was really inspired as as a young queen by Elizabeth Fry. And so it's neat because in spite of the fame and honor given to her, she always pointed people to the Lord. Um, Once she was at a dinner with the King of Prussia, and she opened with prayer and said, remember, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords is present in whose fear we should abide. Like, he's the real king. Mm -hmm. And it's so cool because she wrote later, or somebody in one of the family members said uh, that the Prussian king actually came to her house, and he was so touched by the experience that he wept when he Mm -hmm. left. Amazing. So, uh, again, she received a lot of attention, but she always left people with an understanding that this is the Lord's work. She knew by experience that ultimately only God and his word could truly affect transformation in society. She told the House of Lords in 1835, um, she she just boldly said, I feel it to be the bounden duty of the government in the country that those truths in the Bible should be administered in the manner most likely to conduce to the real reformation of the prisoners. For though severe punishment may in measure deter them from and others from crime, it does not amend and change the heart. She's like, yes, we, you know, that's one, you know, we, of course, there's all these, you know, structures and stuff, but the gospel is what, what's going to really change their hearts. 
instead of just cleaning up the outside. That's what needs to be transforming. So she practiced the gospel in word and deed to transform the culture. And so I, I just love that. The action, the faith in action, the gospel in action. You know, this is, I think, what makes her such a beautiful example for us in our day and age, you know, not just making statements, but going out and living uh, the gospel. So she went home to be with the Lord October of 1845. 65 years 65, old. 65, exactly. Mm -hmm. So out of a stroke. But mm -hmm. you know what, too? Uh, there's a scripture in, um, I think it's Revelation, and it says, though dead, their testimony still speak. Yes. And she, her work continued after her and still does. I mean, mm -hmm. her name is uh, known as the greatest prisoner reformant. Yeah, she was uh, on the their currency. First. I mean, right. yeah, she's very much honored right. in English history. Yeah. Yes, and and also after she died, then the first like uh, mental institution to actually help the mentally mm. ill was built mm -hmm. after. And so um, people started uh, doing things in her name yeah. because of what she had done all over England. There were many, many reforms. Yeah, yeah. She drew attention to these people that were marginalized and just out of sight, out of mind. Mm -hmm. And as we said, this will come up in Florence Nightingale's yes. testimony, yeah, later. Elizabeth Blackwell's testimony. Mm. Uh, she was an influence to so many. So yeah. that's yeah. why— that's why Elizabeth Fry is definitely a woman worth knowing. Absolutely. And that's why we wanted to tell you about her mm -hmm. on the second edition of mm. Elizabeth Fry and Women Worth Knowing. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for listening to Women Worth Knowing with Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine Allnett. For more information on Cheryl, visit CherylBroderson.com or follow her on Instagram or Facebook. You can also follow Jasmine on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. If you think there is a woman worth knowing, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at wwk at cccm.com. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode. Make sure you've subscribed and don't forget to rate us on your podcast app and share it with friends. Thank you again for listening to Women Worth Knowing with Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine Allnutt.